Hello everyone, this is Eric Haug, Founder and Chief Vision Officer at Light Co Creative. Welcome to our first ever visionary interview. In this series, we're going to be highlighting a range of different visionaries and change makers across industries and backgrounds. We are looking forward to sharing these diverse perspectives with you and inspiring more positive change around the world. Today, for our first ever visionary interview, I'm so excited to be introducing and sharing a conversation with the brilliant Lisa Okada Witsit. Lisa comes from a dynamic background, both as an entrepreneur and inventor, as well as a leader leading design and innovation at major organizations such as Cliff Bar and Capital One. It is an insightful conversation. Thank you so much for joining, and I hope you enjoy. And it's just such a pleasure to speak with you today, Lisa. Thank you so much for the time and welcome again to the Visionary Series. Thank you. I'm honored to be one of the first people to speak here. So super exciting and looking forward to it. Yeah, so I, I'd love to dive in with a question to kick us off since we're on the theme of innovation. What is one of your favorite innovation projects that you're observing right now or projects? Um, well, I was, I've been seeing like th some themes that I'm really excited about. Um, one is around circular design. Another is regenerative design. And then also creating behavior shifts or perspective shifts. So maybe I can lay out some that I see in those. Um, when I think about circular design, I think it's really cool what On Running's doing. They're creating a shoe from beans. And what's cool about it is like every aspect of the shoe is made from an element from the same crop of bean. And that way they can grind it down and truly repurpose it and put it back into a cycle and create a circular loop. And it looks like it's a subscription program, um, but it's kind of changing the consumer's mindset of like, okay, um, I'm not gonna just throw these shoes out. I can actually put it back into a circular system. So I'm excited about that. And then on the regenerative front, I think it's really interesting um, what uh, New Light Tech is doing with Nike. They have this really interesting approach of using microorganisms and um, from harvesting them. And from that, they can create a shoe that is carbon neutral, not even carbon neutral, but it actually re re removes carbon from the atmosphere um, after the process. So it's, it's not even status quo, it's taking it back to a better place. Um, so I think that's really cool. And they're experimenting with uh, this type of material for soles of shoes. And I'm curious to see where they go with that. So I think that's a really cool innovation. Um, and then on the terms of behavioral shifts, uh, there, there are quite a few that I like. Um, one that I think is super fun is a group called Camera 60 Studio. And it's this duo in, duo in Italy. And there are these designers that are taking what you think is waste and making beautiful bags. So like imagine um, taking a Nike box or Amazon package and creating beautiful patterns and actually making bags. And they're sharing their patterns out to people and they're kind of redefining what's like cool fashion. You know, like re-looking at your materials and your world and repurposing those. And so that this new state is cooler than the virgin material state. So I, I, I love that. And I love that they're sharing and encouraging a community to kind of think, you know, how can we repurpose waste? Um, and then there's 
behaviors around food that I think are super interesting. Uh, this one company, an app company called Zest Cooking is learning to make, uh, experimenting and creating this cool app to make people understand that cooking can be fun and easy and you actually can learn it. So some of the challenges with cooking is you only get so far or you're not really learning, you're just going from one recipe to another. But what they do is actually teach you principles of cooking in a fun and like humorous way. So that the end goal is you can go to your fridge or your cabinet and like make something yourself and not have food waste. And that's one of the biggest issues um, with uh, waste and um, uh, sustainability is, you know, food packaging is important, of course, but actual food waste is, has the biggest impact. And if you can cook, you're actually going to be healthier too. There's studies on that. So I like the angle of this app, um, making cooking approachable and fun and empowering you to use what you got in your house. Uh, and so that's an app. So when I think about an organizational level, there's this group in um, LA called CropSwap and they're changing front yards into edible gardens and, and, and are making this really cool produce um, subscription-based program where um, not only are people's front yards in LA are changing from um, food wastes land, you know, de food deserts into, you know, access to delicious plant-based food. And then they're also getting a profit from it. So they don't, the people who own the, the yard, front yard, they don't have to stress about upkeeping it. This group helps maintain it and like helps, you know, do the, the, the boxes to share out the food. Um, and then your backyard is, you know, used a lot, but the front yard, you know, I'll think about all that water that's used on lawns. So you don't have to worry about that now. It's a lot of water saving. Um, and it's changing how people have pride in their community, how they think about food. So I think that's a really cool group. And then zooming down smaller, um, I really like this group um, called the Concierge Kitchen, and he's called uh, the Supreme Chef, and he is creating vegan food um, for the LA communities, also in more of uh, areas that don't have access to great uh, produce, but he understands how emotional food is. He uh, is making the familiar, but giving it a tweak. So he has food like um, a po' boy sandwich, a lobster rolls, mac and cheese, but it's all vegan and all delicious. And uh, I like following him because I can see people saying like, gosh, I don't, I never knew what a passion fruit was. I had to Google it. And like, he's exposing people to new foods um, and new, new behaviors. So I, I love that. I love seeing what's happening on a, you know, bigger scale all the way down to individual scale. So those are some things I'm seeing that's getting me excited. It's <laughs> incredible overview. I, I always learn so much and get so inspired every time we speak. And I, I think, you know, this actually really speaks to the breadth and range of your visibility and your sight of interesting design and innovation that's happening in the world. And ultimately how you bring and, and what I've seen you bring in this really empowering leadership style that sees people's genius and creativity and encourages it and helps cultivate it. And that actually leads me to my next inquiry with you is when we think about design leadership and innovation leadership and cultivating that 
in others, whether that's an, an early stage entrepreneur or a rising uh, designer executive at a large organization. How do you think about design leadership in particular and cultivating these skills and, and these types of amazing projects? Good question. Um, I think a couple areas. One is vision, creating vision. Um, because when you think about innovation, it's kind of uncharted territory sometimes, and it can be intangible. So how do you create a vision so it's more tangible and can get people excited? And having a skill set to storytell that, you know, so whether it's, you know, mocking it up or verbally telling it, whatever it is, um, being nimble in that, getting a read for your team and your leadership on what resonates with them, you know, what is more important? Is it more important to see a roadmap to eventually get to that North Star vision or um, they, they have to be convinced in some way and it's better to do a quick mock-up for them to feel and, and see it and believe it. So having the skills to um, really motivate people, inspire people to believe it, envision it and make it like almost on a visceral level, something they can understand and they can articulate out. You don't wanna be the only one be telling the story of this vision and this innovation idea that you have, you want other people to be able to articulate it. So being a good communicator and a storyteller, I think is pretty key. Um, I also think about awareness of self. If you're a design leader, like um, I think it's pretty critical, especially in this day and age when things are so stressful and intense to have really good awareness of self and know when to, uh, when tendencies may take over so that you can calm other people, calm yourself and rally the troops towards a, a vision. That's, that's amazing. So insightful. And I love that you're bringing in the storytelling, the mindfulness practice and, and that broader awareness, not only of how you're relating, but how the group, your team, your organization is relating to whatever idea or concept. I, I think that's very powerful and such a great concept for us to be reinforcing, um, especially as we start to think about more purposeful and, and larger types of solutions to many of our systemic and, and, and greater issues. Um, and I think, you know, something I, I love reading in your medium post around what you've learned from your background as a martial artist was that often it is perceived, especially in design and innovation, entrepreneurship as a fight and how to actually reframe that as more harmony and, and connectivity, uh, which is actually at the, the innate nature of martial arts. And would love to just hear a little bit more from you on what you've learned from your experience as a martial artist and how we can bring some of those lessons and principles into our, our innovation approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad you read that uh, post. Incredible. <laughs> it was pretty, it was I'll, I'll drop fun. it into the comments. Of, of okay. Uh, yeah, I kind of think about it in, in several areas. Uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned a little bit about vision, but in this area, it's a little bit different. Like when I think about martial arts and innovation, um, it's really important to have something I call it soft eyes. It's where you can see the whole environment and you're just not locking in onto one 
solution right away. Um, so it's critical in martial arts, like if you have multiple attackers, you don't want to just focus on the first person, but you want to have awareness of your environment. And then in design, it's very rare that your first idea that you lock into is the best idea. So you want to be open and see all the possibilities. And so that's very connected to uh, in my mind to martial arts. And you know, to me, martial arts is and innovation is a zone where it can be scary. You know, it's chaos. And so like every time you face an opponent, a new opponent, like you don't know them, you don't know their style, their strengths. And so you have to um, be calm. And so I think having that vision creates that calmness um, to slow down. And, you know, same with design. Like it's scary sometimes to go into uncharted water that has no benchmarks. You know, um, how do you tame your own fear as well as others, you know, and have a productive, you know, session or a productive project? project. Uh, so that's how I think vision ladders up to that. There's also um, just having uh, this notion of style, I think is really interesting too. I talk about like a hybrid style and like how you don't want to be locked into a certain style. And if you truly are co-creating with people, you can't be locked in a style. You have to be aware of everybody and include their their point of views and their, and their methods of uh, processing things. So you have to have a very, in my mind, nimble style. And in martial arts, you know, there's styles that are very hard, you know, like very hard blocking. And there's styles that are more fluid that you can redirect um, forces. Uh, so all of them are good. All of them are relevant at certain times. And so then timing comes important, like to know timing, like when is, when is the right time to kind of like stir the group up, a group up and push momentum. When is the right time to kind of pause and allow other energy come into the conversation? Um, so can't do that if you are locked into a certain style. And then um, that term of awareness comes in too, you know, just awareness of, of self and um, really try not to be ego-driven and be purpose-driven. And uh, I think when you can do that, the process itself can be amazing. It can be this um, almost blended experience where you are truly can't dissect who did what. It was so collaborative, you know, it was truly co-creative uh, and um, everybody feels empowered. So that's, that's how, this high level, how I think of it and how it's benefited me. No, that's, that's incredible. So many insights there. And is there a particular style of martial arts that you've practiced most? I, I believe you may have mentioned this, but I'd love for you to share if there is one that you've practiced more. Uh, I think it's become Muay Thai now, but I started mm -hmm. off in a very hard style, Shotokan Karate, and then did a little Hapkido, Taekwondo. I've done... Um, jiu-jitsu and a little bit of judo, a lot of different styles and Aikido I really liked. And that's maybe where I first felt, you know, connection and like really first felt this is not, um, you know, about dominating, it's about connecting and it's about harmony. Um, and Muay Thai, I really connect to, it's, um, I just flow well with it. And I feel it's uh, something that's works well for me. 
Um, but I think it's all about whoever's your teacher. It's not so much the style, it's the, the teacher and the community that you find. Mm. So, yeah. Indeed, no, I'm really grateful to have had exposure and uh, an incredible master in Taekwondo and, and my father, uh, you know, guiding me into martial arts through his practice. And I love that we have the opportunity to connect on that and to share that with others. I just think martial arts is such an incredible practice and opportunity for more empowerment. And, you know, I'd love for us to talk about your background with purposeful toy design, just in your, in your DNA, yeah. <laughs> if you will, and also um, the incredible purposeful empowering doll concept that you uh, created. And uh, there's just so much, I think, in the empowerment topic for us to cover. And I think some intersection with this life force and, and background that you have in martial arts. Yeah, I, you could say I grew up in the toy industry. My dad uh, is a toy designer and uh, he, he really launched the Star Wars toys, Care Bears, Strawberry Shortcake, like he worked on all those. Um, and I got to see how, you know, your concept is not precious. You have, in order to have something work, you gotta really test and you have hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of ideas and maybe you know, one won't make it. So you have to be resilient and uh, really have a passion for like making and testing. So I, as a child, I was making my own toys from scraps and things I found in the house. Um, and as I grew up, I realized toys are such a great platform for kids to express themselves, you know, connect to their identity, express their identity. Um, and so, you know, I've been involved in a couple of toy companies and all of them, I try to like think about, you know, how can we provide more empowering creative experiences for kids? Um, the first one I, I co-founded was Wild Planet Toys, and it was about making science cool to kids. You know, nature and science is cooler than fiction. Have kids go outside and explore. And we were trying to redefine the science category, where at the time was this like black, serious toys, microscopes, what have you, it could be uh, intimidating. And so we made it very adventurous and like gear, gear that you could wear and that the colors and the materiality just spoke adventure and going outside and exploring. So um, that was a super fun, rewarding um, startup. And then another one was uh, a moment where we're looking at, you know, what are, what are dolls and can we broaden what the, that could be? And we created a line of um, dolls that were more action figure dolls rather than the typical fashion doll. And we, uh, the name of this product, uh, this, this startup was Get Real Girl. So we wanted girls get real and uh, you know, get physical and ins inspire um, you know, kind of active play and a new notion of identity. It's not just trapped in fashion. So these dolls had flat feet, they're highly articulated, they were multiracial, they each had a sport that they were interested in and came with really cool detailed gear and a, and a little pass uh, port that told their story. Um, and it was just amazing to get letters and photos and emails from parents and, and kids about how 
this is what they're looking for. And there just wasn't anything at the market at this time. This was pre Bratz. This was um, a while ago. And um, yeah, I just loved it. We, we redefined it and scared some toy companies. Um, and uh, that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of is that, that toy line. It, it's incredible. And I just love these concepts and also really recognize how these insights and this deeper purpose just continues to come through your work. You know, every time we're ideating or talking about a new opportunity, uh, you know, looking at challenging the status quo and bringing in more empowerment uh, is something that, you know, you consistently hold the vision for. And just really looking forward to seeing how some of these learnings and uh, these projects, you know, continue to manifest into more change and, and more positivity. So thank you so much for sharing about these. And yeah, just really admire the, the roots and uh, the legacy that you have in toy design and just tangible creation. It's, it's incredible. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate and, it. You know, I, I think that actually is a nice segue. As we think about tangible physical products, you have so much experience at the intersection of physical, but also digital, which I think is a very rare skill set to be able to look at solutions in that highly tangible spatial prototyping experience design lens, but also think about the internet and our, our post-digital era that we're in. Yeah. Do you have anything to share there, especially as we look at encouraging entrepreneurs yeah. or intrapreneurs to think about the intersection of physical and digital um, in, in maybe a, a more advanced or visionary way? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question. What I've seen sometimes is you have these separate groups and then they try to weave them together. Um, and even the language is different between the physical group, you know, the ID group versus the US group. And um, I, I feel like um, if we look at customers and we look at people in general, they're not thinking of these things separate. They're like so woven now. Um, so even like storyboarding out the journey, like I would see sometimes this is on the screen, this is on the screen, and then this, and then this is on the screen. I'm like, but there's physical touch points. Like how, how do you show the merging of those and not keep them so separate? Because if you storytell it separate, it's gonna feel separate and you want it to feel connected. So I think that's an exciting area is, is to bring those languages together, bring those teams together more. So it's not like one team just showing you the screen flow and another team showing you that the physical engagement, it's like teams actually working more um, collaboratively together and sharing a language so that it's more unified. Because if you watch somebody, it's like they're walking, they're talking, they're on the phone, they're not, they're doing this and that. It's like, it's not even thought, oh, I'm going to the physical world. Oh, I'm going to the digital world. It's just seamless. So the design needs to kind of um, process needs to uh, evolve in that way too. So, so well said, and just really, really resonates a lot in different prototyping <laughs> environments and uh, how to help guide that more integrated thinking. Uh, are there any tools? I, I know you mentioned uh, storyboarding and, and journey maps. Are there any tools that you've found or exercises to be 
particularly powerful uh, in the early stage concept development and prototyping phases? Yeah, I, I think bringing the whole team together and observing customers, you know, and if not everybody can go, then filming it and sharing it with the rest of the team, but just being connected as a group on, on what customers' patterns are, their beliefs, their workarounds, their behaviors, and, and seeing it so that um, there aren't these assumptions. I think that's really um, powerful. Um, and, and I know there's this notion like we all want to go agile and then like, oh, but we want human-centered design, we want design thinking. And to me, that's almost like what I was talking about earlier about styles, like being too rooted in we're only agile and we're only design thinking. It's like, I think another tool, if you want to say it, is a perspective around um, using those all at the right time and not being anti a certain approach. I think you want to have that holistic understanding of human centered design from the get-go to kind of frame your direction. And then yes, you can be agile um, as you move forward. And you can do that in a way that's really rapid and not um, doing very expensive MVPs or doing very expensive, uh, you can do very low prototyping to get a read how someone would respond. And I'm sure a lot of people have done this, um, but that's, I'm just advocating for, you know, blending both approaches or multiple approaches. And as long as everyone's unified in how you talk about it, I think it's uh, effective. No, I, I think that is just so well framed. And, you know, as we're looking to develop more skills across you know, different types of employee groups and as organizations are shifting and, you know, creativity, innovation, human-centered design, these are becoming our, you know, key differentiators as, as humans, I would say, and, and adding value and in solving problems uh, as we do get into, you know, more automation and different skills become more and more important. So I think advocating and encouraging more development in these spaces is, is a huge opportunity for our workforce and economy. And I really, really love the way that you've uh, illustrated the impact and the importance of these skills for teams to come together yeah. and find meaningful solutions. And uh, one thing that I know we've talked about a bit uh, is inclusion in the co-creative oh process. Just about to bring that up. That, that was like customers yeah. that were bringing yeah. together. You know, often I think there's a uh, a gap in who we're actually problem solving with. I, I'd love to yeah. speak about that a bit with you. Yeah, for sure. Like having all the all the people at the table, like have customers at the table, have the people who are going to be living and using your service or product at the table. You know, so it's not like designing for them, it's designing with them and elevating uh, communities and people um, increasing their skill set and increasing your skill set because you are like broadening your, your vision. Um, I just seen um, too many assumptions made and like, um, you know, potential awesome projects that kind of missed it because they didn't include the right people. So that when you're, I was wanting to add that to the, when you talk about tools, like just defining tools is an interesting pro, uh, thing for me, but I, I think um, that's a process that you, you cannot miss. 
And that needs to be from the beginning. You can be too far down the line and then like you've just veered so far off because you didn't include the right people from the beginning at the table. So that's a new practice and hopefully it's not new, but that's an important practice for design leaders and for leaders in general um, is to bring the right people to the table. Incredible. And looking forward to just seeing more inclusive innovation is definitely a theme and a trend uh, that has been growing, a movement, if you will. And just thank you for being such an incredible leader and, and advocate of these practices. Thank you. I'd love to open the floor, hand the mic over if there's anything that has been top of mind for you, just in general, any, any topic that maybe we can use this space to discuss together or to share any, any message for our viewers and friends. I, I guess uh, those two things I was thinking of. One is, you know, we keep hearing, you know, impact at scale and these grand things and uh, which are incredibly important. But I'm also thinking of the importance of the individual and the community. And like, if we don't also have that lens, those people don't get to the table. You know, like it, thing with scale can like um, have the, it's having this ability to flare and focus and um, make sure that you're having the right people. And so valuing, putting value on bringing community more in more in the conversation and individuals who are already doing it. Um, I think is, and connecting people, I think is important. So uh, I think that's a tension I, I, I see. And then um, just innovation, I think is, is such an interesting space. And I know everyone's focused on that. Uh, and it can be challenging when you have an existing roadmap happening. And then how do you weave in these new insights or new um, initiatives? And uh, that's something I would love to hear more about what other groups and corporations and how they're navigating that. and. Um, I've seen it done a lot of different ways, um, but you know things are changing at such a rapid scale. Even thinking what success is now has to be talked about so crisply up front. You know, is it being sustainable? Is that enough? You know, that's a status quo. Is it you know regenerative? If so, how do you define that? And like how how at what scale do you want to be at? I think all those are going to be conversations that are happening a lot more these coming years. And um, yeah, those are the two things I was just thinking about. And incredible advice and I think topics to have top of mind, whether you are an entrepreneur driving change at a large organization or an entrepreneur solving problems out in the wild, if you will. Uh, I, I think these principles are just incredible and, and very illuminating. So Lisa, I'd love to speak a bit about Jagad. Uh, apologies for any mispronunciation, but as we look to open our minds and find solutions through ancient wisdom or different cultures, I think this is such an incredible example and how we can, yeah, just really expand our, our perspective and our capacity for problem solving with nature as well. Yes. Um... So, you know, my background is design thinking. And last year I, I read this article um, about Jogad 
and I thought, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. And it's really about um, being nimble and resourceful with the materials you have and making the most of your environment and anyone can do it. And it's, a, um, it's coming out of the, the concepts coming out of uh, India and um, I find it's a different kind of perspective than we have in the West. And uh, I was super excited to hear about it. And my dad comes from Hawaii. So he grew up um, with that notion of Jogad and making things, toys from leaves and like jerry-rigging things together and doing it in a smart way. And what I like about Jogad is like, it actually can be scalable and it, it's coming from the people who are using it and are, are problem solving their own solutions, which I think is really powerful. Um, and it, it just makes me think, um, I think we should be looking more to the wisdom of indigenous design, um, whether it's in food, whether it's in materials or in building, um, especially with all the stuff's happening with climate change. You know, they, the indigenous cultures were very nimble and were able to be more connected to the nature, to nature. And there's so much we can learn from them. And I'm starting to see more people do that, more organizations, more companies starting to look at that. Um, there was a moment in time where, when I was at Cliff Bar, we were looking at fermented food. Every culture has fermentation and there's a wisdom behind it. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be, feel not relevant, it's very relevant. And it's kind of powerful that it comes from your own culture and to bring these practices and problems, solutions, problem solving back to life, it's just smart. Um, I'm, I also like this company in Ghana called um, Hive Earth, and they are making um, com compressed earth for walls instead of concrete. And concrete ha has a lot of off-gassing and it's not very environmental, but here's something that is, can be beautiful. It is a process that is, you know, has been done for many ages, um, but it's being brought back to life and creating jobs and creating uh, beautiful homes. And um, I think that's super innovative. And, you know, companies like that, that are bringing back this ancient wisdom, um, I think should have more momentum. And I think even like NASA is looking at like, you know, how do we use materials when we go to other planets like Mars? How do we build using materials that are there? You know, what kind of processes do we have on Earth that could be relevant as we go to these off planets? So um, there's this thread. We can't ignore wisdom that we've had in the past, how we can bring it back. And so not only are we co-creating like in present time, let's co-create with the past. Back to the future. <laughs> I, I I love it and love that we're just bringing this up and all the different insights that we've recently been starting to collect from different cultures and just so much here. I, I think it's a great weaving moment into immersive experiences as well and, and experiential innovation. So let's frame it both immersive experiences in the context of 
experiential innovation with teams and, and organizations that are looking to create and, and how do you make that more experiential as opposed to logical and uh, get yeah. deeper into that immersion, if you will. Yeah. And then I think we can talk a little bit about how immersive experiences and the experience economy is really shifting how customers uh, and communities interplay with, with brands and with solutions, organizations. So yeah, to kick yeah, off I think, experiential innovation. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's so important. It's how we are, as humans are wired. We're physical, we process things spatially. And so if you really wanna connect quickly on a, a level that people can really understand and feel like I think a physical immersive experience, you can't beat it um, to kind of express understandings or even behavioral change or learnings or connection. We're social creatures. So uh, immersive experience and how you define it can be broad. Um, but in my mind, it's, it's, it's this blend of being physically there and you're sharing the experience with others. Um, and there's something tactile about it and experiential about it that you are a part of it. And um, sometimes like the ones that are designed to be platforms for self-expression are very memorable because you became a part of that experience and expressing your own identity and what you believe in. It can be a way of uh, self-identifying. Um, and you know, it's been hard with uh, what's been going on with the pandemic but it hasn't changed our basic DNA of humans where we desire connection, we desire physical um, processing. So how can we bring that, because digital is not going away. And like, how do you bring that in the digital world? How do we make digital world even more spatially you can orientate better rather than these Zoom boxes that are like, that's not how we connect with people, you know? <laughs> um, and then how do we elevate uh, you know, immersive experience that now that we can go back and it's, you know, more staggered, but like, and make it a, a mixed uh, experience, both digital and physical, like where you can continue to experience after you leave. And that connection feels organic. It doesn't feel forced. Um, I think in the past, there was a lot of touching screens, but, you know, people are kind of screen touching averse now. So like, what other ways to do it? I think we're so... I don't know where my phone is, but so reliable on phones. Like, how do you blend that with your phone and the physical environment in a seamless way so that you, you can capture your memories and have record or shareability or expand your knowledge with, with that, your own device, um, and still be connected to that physical experience you had. I think those are all very interesting um, things to think about. So top of mind, that's just kind of where my my, my head goes. Uh, I guess also I want to say, I think it's a common, you're mentioning visceral and cognitive. I think it's a blend. Like when you're in a physical environment, it's this blend of things that are very visceral and the tone of the space, what you feel, see, all the senses. And then there's also this cognitive level of like, you know, what's the ask here? What does this experience want me to do? What is my takeaway? How did it make me feel? Like it, you have to be, um, wise and, and being aware of both of those because if you just one or the other it's going to like you know not be successful you, you're going to want to have both and both be connected to the same kind of tone and and feel and such a 
deep insight on the tone and feel and bringing that cognitive and visceral together, that, that intersection. And ultimately, how do you think about behavior change? I'd love to just round that out because we talked about it. You know, we're looking at climate change and right. roll back. How do we get into climate action to actually solve these problems and get people to activate and shift behaviors and habits in a way that's positive and more harmonious with each other and nature? What are some of the elements? And I know this is an ongoing study and formula that we're also working on mastering, but what are some of the elements that you're seeing are positive around behavior change? Um, Think of a couple. And when I think about making something approachable and familiar, you know, like I was mentioning concierge kitchen and the Supreme chef, how he, uh, he will take something like, you know, a lobster roll and like, okay, that's cool. Rather than something that's kind of esoteric or not familiar, not something that you can relate to and, and then infuse. So like, how do you, whatever your focus is on and a behavior change, how do you create something that's um, an entry point, a gateway, a comfortable threshold to pass into and then introduce something that pushes the person a little bit. So that's one way. Um, another way is to kind of highlight that this is the norm. I think people are afraid to do behavior shifts when they think they may be an outlier and one of the few, and they motivate some people. Like some people are like, yeah, I wanna be like the edge person, you know, I wanna be breaking ground, but like some other people are like, are hesitant, would be judged, you know? Um, but if you, if you show this behavior, it's like, no, you're, you're it's, it's what people are doing. And like, you are, you're behind the eight ball or like, um, it's also what needs to be done. So this this notion of it's, it's a norm and it's like, should be done um, and it's not hard. Like it's just familiar. It's It's got this connected thread, emotional thread, um, some way to your own culture, to your past, to um, what makes you feel good. I think those are important. And then I guess the other layer is, um, it's a way of being a platform to self-identify. Like you value this kind of behavior and you can you know, shout out and share it and also be part of the, whether it's increasing the norm or whether you wanna like show that you're a trailblazer. Like either way, you are uh, expressing your values. So those are, are just top of mind approaches. Really connecting the individual into the participation with the, the shift and the change that's happening. So powerful. If, if there was a habit that you could see many people, let's just say the majority of humanity adopt and in an experiment to see how that habit being adopted would result in positive change. What is a, a habit or an action that you might be curious to see adopted at, at scale for humanity? Gosh, that's such a great question. And I'm trying to see how to frame it right. Um, my first gut was like empathy, but I think it's 
uh, for others. But I, I'm wondering it's, if it's like benefit of doubt, like, you know, I think we jump to conclusions so fast. I think we, we judge people and maybe it's this, it's the anti-judgment factor and like trying to put yourself in someone's shoes. And, you know, I, I will see people get so mad at someone who cut them off. But like, if you change your mindset, like, you know, oh my gosh, they're trying to go see their mom who just went to the hospital. Like, you don't know what that person's going through. So what, don't project it and just try to be open um, and not judge and think the best of people and see the best of people. I think that'd be amazing behavior shift to adapt. And I know a lot of us already do that, but I don't know how consistently we do that. But if we could have the whole globe do that, that'd be pretty amazing. That is a beautiful, beautiful wish and hold the vision for all of us to step into that more openness and more empathetic, non-judgmental mindset. So Lisa, thank you so much for taking time to connect today and to share all of your incredible insights and perspectives. I'm sure this has been illuminating for everyone watching. I know it has been for me. And again, if you'd like to connect with Lisa, I will include her information in the comments and in the episode details. Looking forward to sharing more with the world. Thank you so much again, Lisa. Thank you, Eric.